as I mentioned, it's so good to have you here. We've been having a great summer. We're working through a series called Echoes. We're, we're into our life journals. We're hearing what God's speaking to our voice. I've got a great message I'm going to share with you in just a few moments. A couple of real quick things I need you to be aware of. Uh, those of you that have registered for the Global Leadership Summit, Thursday and Friday, this is the week, two power-packed days of the greatest communicators right here at the church. We're going to be linked in. There's just going to be thousands across Canada, down into the U.S. We're all linked together for the training. And if you haven't yet registered, you can still do it. There's a computer set up right out in the foyer. You can do that for $149, get you both days of world-class training. And uh, I I just can't strongly encourage you strongly enough. It's really worth the investment. So please plan to be with us. Also, those of you that are serving into our ministries, you're part of our ministry partner teams, or maybe you're curious about getting involved. On Sunday night, August the 18th, we're going to do an Inspire Night. We're getting ready. Hard to believe, but we're already talking about getting ready for the fall, planning out through the new year, planning towards Christmas. I know, August, why are we talking about Christmas? But we are, and we're getting ready to go. So if you want to be a part of that, Get that on your calendar. Save the date, August the 18th in the evening. Now, through the summer, occasionally, I have a chance to connect with some great guest communicators. And there's been one individual that I've tried to connect with over the last two and a half years or so, and our schedules have never really worked out. We finally have worked it out. So he's going to be joining us. I want him to do the introduction. So would you watch the side screens, and then I'm going to explain the background. Hey everybody, I'm Joe Amaral of First Century Foundations, and I'm excited I'll be coming your way to your church to speak to you guys, and I'll be talking about Jesus, but but in a different way, probably in a way that you're not really used to hearing about him. A lot of times we look at him as a westernized Christian, uh, because we can't help it, it's the culture that we live in, and we see him through our, our lenses. But what I want to do is I want to take you back in time, 2,000 years to the first century Jewish culture, look at his miracles look at his daily life and his, his teachings, his figure of speeches from a first century Jewish perspective. And when we do that, things really change. We get to really fully understand Jesus and the, the fullness of the meaning of his teachings. So again, I'm excited to be with you guys. If you want more information, go to the church website or go to rsfirstcenturyfoundations.com and we'll see you real soon. Those of you that maybe don't know Joe, Joe is the only individual that I know in Canada that studies specifically the Hebraic roots of our faith. He lives almost over in Israel. He travels there so much he really could live there. Uh, Joe is based out of the region here, but he has a, a show. It's on CTS Channel 9, First Century Foundations. Just talking with him in preparation, we finally scheduled a date. Sunday morning, August the 18th, he's going to be here in the building with us. He's going to share out of his experiences. And I can tell you, any of you that have seen some of his show, just talking, give you a little bit of background. Uh, they're trying to really get him into the culture of Israel, understand our faith, what's the background like. So one of the exploits they got him into, they got Joe in with the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF. So Joe was in sniper training. He was part of their training for their terrorist organization. And then he was integrating that back into faith and life. You're going to have an incredible Sunday morning. So Mark, August the 18th, you don't want to miss that. Well, let's get our Bibles out. We're going to get started this morning. And I'm going to talk to you about a message that's called Smarten Up. Now, has your mom or dad ever said that to you? Let me show of hands, anybody. All right, we were all raised by the same kind of parents. That was one of the common phrases in our household. If we were misbehaving, we kind of expected at some point when we kind of... You know that threshold? You cross the threshold, and then they finally go, smarten up, and they yell it out. Well, that's what I'm going to get into this morning, and we're going to look at that. If you need to borrow a Bible, hold your hand up real high. 
Our ushers are on the way down. They're going to make sure that you can borrow this. If you're a guest today, we loan these to you so you can use them during the service. Leave them on the seat before you leave. We'll make sure we pick them up, but you can track along. Now, for those of you who got your electronic devices, you can go to uversion.com. And if you got your regular Bibles, we're going to go to James chapter 2. So James chapter 2 is where we're going to land this morning. James is a very, very practical book. If you're new to the Bible and you're not used to that, James is the younger half-brother of Jesus, and he writes very practically about how to live our lives. And I'm going to zero in on chapter 2 and a topic that I think touches every one of our lives, and we're going to look at how we can deal with this. Before I get into that, I just want to share with you a little bit. I always give you background. You know my story. You know a lot about my life. But one of the things maybe you don't know is I am a great fan of Smarties. I love Smarties. Anybody else like Smarties? All right, good. Some Smarties. Nestle fans with me in the room this morning. I love Smarties. When I'm at the summit, sometimes some of my friends will smuggle some down to me at the front, you know, contraband Smarties, so I can eat while we're watching the presentation. Laura will often go and buy them for me. They're one of my favorite snack foods. But what I never realized... I have come to discover that this little candy-coated chocolate has potentially been the source of a very deep, serious character flaw that I have. Now, I know that shocks you. Really, Doug, you have a character flaw? Yeah, let me me play this out for you. I think Smarties are the reason for my character flaw. Now, I'm going to show you why, just in case those of you that raise your Smarty hands, you're going to see why. Look at the words to the song, if we can go there. Anybody recognize these words? All right. When you eat your Smarties, do you eat the red ones? Oh, you guys know the song. Okay. Do you suck them very slowly or crunch them very fast? Eat that candy coated chocolate, but tell me when I ask, when you eat your Smarties, do you eat the... Yeah. Do you see the second line and the last line? Do you eat the red ones? I never realized it, but from childhood, the Nestle's company was manipulating me to eat the red Smarties last. They were teaching me how to show favoritism to chocolates. So I have this deeply embedded, serious character flaw. I now show favoritism because of the Nestle company. Now, some of you are thinking, seriously, Doug, is that where that came from? Well, before you judge me, we all struggle with favoritism. You know that. Some of us wanted to be our parents' favorite child right? We know we were raised in family. We had multiple siblings. We did everything that we could to sort of, you know, earn mom and dad's favored rights. Or if you're married, you want to be the favorite son-in-law or the favorite daughter-in-law. And so we do this positioning and we have this little bit of an issue in our hearts and in our lives where we play favorites with one another. And yet, James challenges us about this whole issue of favoritism that we have to be careful and we have to watch that we don't allow favoritism to undermine our relationships. We don't really readily admit to playing favorites, but truthfully, we're conditioned to it. Our society conditions us. You think about some of the things that we're involved in. I mean, you have membership only, you have membership privileges, you have first-class perks. You've got all these things that happen around us on a regular daily basis. And what we're really doing is we have a group of people that are preferred and we have a group of people that maybe aren't preferred. And we're seeding in through our cultural biases favoritism. And in case you don't believe me, let's just watch this video clip for a moment. People just aren't nice anymore. They're not. 
at all, you know? I mean, I, I fly a lot. I go to a lot of airports and stuff. And they always, you know, and they, they do the, the announcements for getting on the plane. It's always the same, like, first class people, you're welcome to board. First class, first class, Sky Elite status, Sky Team, Sky members, One World Alliance members, Platinum Plus, Platinum First Class. Gl- all the successful people, go ahead and get on the plane right now. Success- <laughs> if you've ever done anything with your life, thank you for being born. We love you all. Please get on the plane at your leisure. We'd like to continue boarding with the unwashed masses. The unwashed masses. All you gypsies, tramps, and thieves, it's your turn to put your shoes on and grab whatever you travel with. Grab your chickens and your milk crates, it's your turn to get on. It's us, honey. We're going to fly on the earth. We're going to go up real high. See, we don't talk about it, but it happens all the time. In fact, when you fly, don't you hope that you get bumped up to that part of the plane? Now be honest, we do. We all sit back and coach, sweating because there's no air conditioning, there's no moist towels, there's no pre-flight drinks available. You're all crammed in the back in that little... And look at me, look at how big I am. Most of you are a little bit shorter, you fit in the seats. My knees are wedged up in the person's back in front of me and I'm going, boy, wouldn't it be nice just to be up there? And then when they take off, they pull the curtain across just to remind us, you're not welcome up there. What is that? That's well, just a form of favoritism. Okay, maybe they paid a little bit more, but I don't care for my illustrative purposes. That's favoritism. So I go back to this, that favoritism affects all of us. Did you know that favoritism even affects the animal kingdom? It does. It's serious. Look at this. The only ones that say it doesn't exist are the ones getting it. A mama bird feeding her one preferred little bird. No, I don't know. That was just a great random shot that we could give to you today. Favoritism is something, though, that James speaks about. Now, truthfully, and I brought these with me, I don't think I can blame Smarties, all right? So just so you know, I do love my Smarties, but I don't think I can blame Smarties. But I do know something. Our fallen nature and our human condition breeds favoritism into so many of our relationships. And you might be thinking to yourself, so what's the big deal? So I have my favorite team and I have my favorite friend and I have my favorite, you know, in-law or I have my favorite cousin or I have whatever we call our favorite. What's the big deal? Well, to James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, is it is a big deal. Because James actually saw something take place in the hearts of people and he said, if you don't arrest the insidious nature of favoritism, it has the potential to undermine the very relationships that you desire to enjoy in life. If your Bibles are open, I'm going to show you a couple of things this morning. We're actually going to talk about how do I deal with favoritism. But I want you to look at James chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 9 and see what James has to say about it. James says, but if you treat some people better than others, well, what's that? That's favoritism. If you treat some people better than others, you have done wrong. And the scriptures say you have sinned. So James takes what for many of us has become a socially acceptable response. And he goes, it's wrong. You can't treat people differently. You can't walk into a public context. You can't show up for church on Sunday morning. You can't go to a sports game. You can't go to work. You can't go to the mall. You can't go shopping. You cannot look at one person and treat them one way and then turn around and treat another person in a completely, entirely different manner. He goes, if if you're really a follower of Jesus... You won't do that. Now look at the verse again on the screen just for a moment. 
when he talks about this, he says, you have done wrong. What he's speaking about there is you have wronged our relationship with a fellow human being. And then the next part is, and the scriptures teach that you have sinned. And that tells us then that we have wronged our relationship with God. So James puts it out there just blatantly. He goes, if you show favoritism, you're damaging your human relationships and you're damaging your relationship with God. And I would venture to say that the majority of us, apart from maybe reading it occasionally when we read the book of James, we really don't think deeply about the impact of favoritism in our lives. In fact, we use the word so glibly, we just throw it out there. Well, that's my favorite team. That's my favorite tie. That's my favorite dress. That's my favorite pair of shoes. We have used the word and so sanitized the word that it no longer impacts us when we actually think about our relationship with a fellow human being, another man and another woman, and our relationship with God. And so James says, hey, it is a big deal. And I want to make sure that whatever you do, you don't destroy the very relationships because God's heart is that you would have these unbelievably giving and receiving relationships with each other. And if you allow favoritism to seed in, then it will cause permanent damage to those and almost to the point where it's irreparable. So we're going to learn how we can fix this because there's good news. James says there's a way to deal with this. So take your notes out. Those of you that want to take them out of the bulletin, i got a few uh, pointers, out of, a couple of steps. I'm going to give you three steps to overcoming favoritism today. If you're doing it electronically, you can go to uversion.com, look for Mississauga, the live events. And you can fill in the notes. But let's do it together. Take your notes. Let's get started. Here's the first step to overcoming favoritism. And uh, by the way, the good news is you don't have to give up Smarties. In case those of you that like them, you don't have to give those up. The first principle is this. Strive to be impartial with everyone that you meet. Now, it's much easier for me to say those words and it's easier for you to write those words down. But the reality is for us to live them out is extremely difficult. And James comes back with his teaching, and I'm going to show it in the Scripture here, and he makes it just abundantly clear that all of us are underneath the same umbrella, that when it comes to our human relationships, that we need to learn how to be impartial with everyone, not just the preferred, everyone. James 2, verse 1, up on the screen in your notes, it says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now, he conditions it in a very unique way here. Obviously, this is true for all people. We shouldn't show favoritism. But he comes back and he speaks to those of us that are actually followers of Christ, those that say we're part of his kingdom. He goes, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you won't do this. And so he challenges the local group of people that he is writing to in his context, and the Spirit of God captures these words so that we could learn together with him that we can't allow favoritism to infect our lives, especially when a behavior or attitude is so prevalent and so readily embraced as normal, we end up having to challenge the norm in society. Think about it. To not show favoritism, to treat everybody equally, is countercultural. It's absolutely countercultural because we have been so deeply influenced that it's right and it's okay to prefer and honor others above other people. And yet the Bible says we can't do that. Treating everyone with impartiality is essential as a follower of Christ. Now, the fact is, we often make judgments based upon people's appearance the way they dress, the level of their education, the amount of their income. We look at all the externals of a person's life and we immediately make a judgment. We did it all day. 
This morning when we were coming to church, when you saw somebody, there was an internal mechanism that just kicked in and you immediately ran them through a cycle of, oh, here's what I think about that person there. And then when we saw someone else. And when you see a friend, it changes. But James says, when you look at the face of any human being, don't show favoritism. Be impartial to all. This was really, this came home to an individual by the name of John Barrier. John is a construction worker and he talks about going down to actually cash a check. He was short on money and he wanted to get some cash and he walked into the bank and he just wrote a check out, wanted to cash a check. And he asked the teller for the check and it was downtown and so he needed to get his parking validated and the bank would do that if you were making your deposits, they'd validate your parking. But on this particular day, John wasn't making a deposit, he was simply cashing a check. He went to get it validated and they said, sorry, we don't validate. And John goes, well, it's part of your policy. And they said, no, only if you're making a deposit. He goes, but I'm a, I'm a regular depositor, like I'm a regular customer. Why won't you validate? And the teller just refused to do it. So John went over to see the manager, the bank manager, and explained why he was asking, would you validate my parking? And the bank manager looked at John, kind of gave him the up and down, you know, judged quickly, and said, no, we won't do that. And John left the building disgusted. John admitted that he came from the construction site. He's a construction worker. He said, I had my old dirty shirt on. I had my ripped jeans. I had my big floppy work boots on. He goes, you know, I wasn't the appearance of the CEO, the Fortune 500. I just walked into the bank and cashed a check, and I just wanted my parking validated. They refused to do it, and he was convinced that it was the way that he appeared. They made a snap judgment, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. John actually went home and contacted the bank to register a complaint, and he waited for a response, and he never got a response from the bank. He was so upset with his feeling that he had been judged by his appearance that he went back to the bank and he closed his accounts. He transferred all $2 million to another bank. Not bad. Hard lesson for the bank to learn. But we have to ask ourselves, I wonder if we were in the position of the teller or the manager, would we have done any different? Would we have thought differently? See, that's why it's so countercultural. It runs against the norm. When we see somebody, immediately we take the external appearance and we make a, a judgment about that individual. James says, don't do that. You know, we've heard little lines used, like clothes make the man. But sometimes I think it's, our, it's clothes that make up our opinion of the man. That when we see somebody who's dressed nicely in nice fine clothes, we go, oh, that must be a successful person. And we see somebody who's dressed in their blue jeans and their motorcycle jacket, we think, oh, that might be Doug. Uh, That person is maybe not so good. And we make these little snap decisions real quickly about people. And we have to be careful. Go back to the Bible for a moment. Look at James chapter 2. James actually illustrates for his audience to help them understand because he knew probably at that time about 90% of the people would have been deeply impoverished, living on the borderline of poverty. So they would have related well to the story. So look what it says in James chapter 2, 3, and 4. He said to his listeners, his audience, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, meaning the one wearing fine clothes, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor... Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? What is James talking about? In the gathering of the church, in the home gatherings that they would have, people were easily swayed when somebody who appeared to be important or prominent would come in. And they used to, the rich people used to spend a lot of money on their clothes. 
We talked about some of this in some of our prior messages, but they'd often buy the fabrics, and some of them would even have silver lined into the fabric so it would glisten in the sun. And people would get really enamored, and they'd go, oh, it's kind of like seeing somebody show up with an Armani suit, and you go, whoa, nice suit. And James warns the people. He prepares the people. He goes, don't let clothes become your determination of the quality of a person's life. You have to be impartial with everyone you meet. So don't be swayed by somebody who looks like they're dressed to the nines. And there may be somebody. Because you never know. The, the impoverished person has a heart that God cares about just as much as the rich person does. So he tells us to watch carefully. Life, uh, Life magazine, those of you that enjoy life, you'll know they often do these photo essays. And they'll do a whole spread on photos, on different levels of essays. And one year what they did is they, they wanted to do a photo essay on people. So they... They recruited a number of people. They got them to sign a release, and they chose CEO from Fortune 500 companies all the way down to homeless people on the street. And after they had the signatures, after they had the releases, they said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go back and change, and then we're going to take your picture. And when you change, leave your clothes there. We have a towel for you to wrap in, and we're going to take a picture of you in a towel. And so the people said, all right, we'll do it. Then they put the compilation together, and they had all of these people in this photo essay merely wrapped in towels. And they asked the average person on the street, can you tell us who the Fortune 500 is and who the homeless person is? Nobody could guess. Nobody could guess. The great equalizer was the towel. When everybody was dressed the same, nobody knew how to, how to identify who the perceived successful person is versus the homeless person is. See, so much of what we do in our culture is based on externals, and yet Jesus challenges us and he goes, make sure that in your heart... You treat everybody impartially and you do everything within your power to do so. Timothy says, Paul wrote wrote to Timothy and he said this, Be fair with everyone and don't have any favorites. That's found in 1 Timothy 5.21. Be fair with everyone and don't have any favorites. All right, let's go to another principle. How do you deal with favoritism then? Honestly confront your personal biases. You have to honestly confront your own personal bias. What do I mean by that? We all have a checklist. It's an unpublished list that we have. And it's in our minds. And we run it as quickly as we see a person. And so when we see people, we have this unpublished list of desirable or undesirable attributes or what's going to make a person sort of favorable towards us. And we have to be careful that that checklist doesn't become the determination as to how we treat people. And really what the checklist is, it's a list of our biases. It may be education, it may be wealth, it may be color, it may be status, it may be, could be anything. Fill in the blank. And those biases then predetermine how we're going to respond to people. And we have to honestly confront and root out the biases that we have and that will be used against people. If you think about it this way, Jesus bumped up against this many different times. In his time, the Jewish people had deep biases against the Gentiles. So when he'd be talking to the teachers, the leaders of the law, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, this would come up over and over and over. They would refer to Gentiles as dogs. They treated them with absolute disrespect. Of course, it was mutual. The Gentiles did the same to the Jews, and the Romans, of course, did that to the Jews. Even Jesus' disciples struggled with this. See, our biases get so deeply ingrained that we often never deal with them. And sometimes we've picked them up as we grow up inside of our homes. Other times we begin to emerge them into our life through our life experiences. 
But the disciples were with Jesus, and one day Jesus was traveling, wanted to go up to, to Cana, and he said, hey, I want to go through Samaria to get there. And his disciples were like, whoa, whoa, time out, Jesus. We don't go through Samaria. There's another way. They would actually, a, a devout Jew would circumvent, circumnavigate Samaria in order to avoid the people because they had this whole um, elitist attitude, and they despised the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were a mixed breed. There were some Jews, and then they resettled with some of the, the foreigners. And so that whole era of captivity, Samaria became known as a place where a devout Jew would never associate. So Jesus' own disciples are going, no, 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 don't go there. Let's stay away from there. Well, bring it back closer to home. Those of you who lived in Canada for a number of years, you can just peel back through the years. I can remember growing up, I grew up in western Canada. I can distinctly remember the sense of angst and hostility. And there used to be a period of time, those of you who've been here for a number of years, when there was the tension between the French-speaking Canadians and the English-speaking Canadians. I'm so glad that we're, we're sort of beyond that for the most part. But I remember in my early youth years and, and uh, teenage years, I can remember people having just feelings of animosity towards a cultural distinction. I go, why do we do that? And we all know that. And you can look around the room. And in fact, many of you that come and have immigrated into Canada, you know even in your own countries of origin, this all happens. So to be a follower of Jesus, he goes, hey, we level the playing field. Everybody, everybody is equal. And so the challenge here is to make sure that whatever we do, we root out those personal biases that we have. Go back into your Bibles real quickly for a moment. James chapter 2, uh, chapter two verse 6, it says this. James, again, illustrating the rich man coming into the meeting, he says, you will dishonor the poor if you ask them to change their seat, but isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into the courts? So what James was taking as a cultural norm, he said, you force a poor person to give up their seat in order to honor a rich person, but all of you know that it's usually the rich person that's abusing you, enslaving you, and they drag you off to court. So contextually for them, he was going, why would you do that? Why would you dishonor one who is common to you in preference towards a rich person who at the drop of a hat doesn't care about your life and they'll sue you if they need to sue you? So contextually, he was just saying, be careful that you don't bias yourself against that who is your brother, the poor person. It's interesting, when I was putting my message together, I came across... um, one of the writings of Mahatma Gandhi. And uh, Mahatma Gandhi actually wrote in his autobiography about his pursuit and interest in the Christian faith. And during his college years, he spent uh, just an enormous amount of time reading through the Gospels. And he had actually come to the place, he said, I had come to the place where I truly believed that in the words of Jesus, that there was a way of dealing with the caste system in India. And he said, so after I read it many, many, many times, he said, I felt that Jesus had a solution to the caste system. So he decided to visit a church on a Sunday with the intent to speak to the pastor. He wanted to become a follower of Jesus and then find out how to implement the teachings to change the face of India. Mahatma Gandhi went on to say that on that Sunday when he walked into the service, he was met by an usher at the back door who, when he greeted him, said, Why are you here? Why don't you go worship with your own people? He left the service not having talked to the pastor and having experienced, obviously, a very, very poor 
uh, demonstration of Christian love. But Mahatma Gandhi went on to write, he said, I realized something when I left the church that day, that if the Christians have a caste system within their faith, why should I give up Hinduism and just embrace a different form of caste system? To which he never did turn back towards the gospel. See, it's interesting when we allow bias to see deep into our hearts the impact that it actually has on the broader group of people. It will cause irreparable damage. That's why we need to honestly confront the biases that we have and make sure that we don't allow them to get deeply rooted into our heart. A young lady by the name of Dodie Gradient is a teacher in the U.S. She had been teaching for 13 years, and her specialty, of course, was in geography. She would teach on some of the places, locations, and the significant sites that you could visit in the States. And one year, after 13 years of teaching, Dodie decided she wanted to travel and personally experience all these different locations. So for her summer break, she got her truck, hooked it up to a big camper, 56 feet in length, uh, truck and camper together, and she set off to go visit all of these different sites. At one part in her journey, she writes about being up near Sacramento over in California. She said, I was turning onto the I-5. Anybody who's traveled out there, that's the major highway, big freeway. She said, I turned onto the I-5. I hit the I-5 in the midst of rush hour. By herself, truck, camper, 56 feet length of vehicle. And she's now in rush hour. And she says, wouldn't you know, my truck broke down. She pulls over to the side. She said, I'm standing there. And I have now caused, in spite of rush hour, she says, I've caused a traffic jam. That's horrific. Dodie said, I stood outside and I leaned up against my trailer and I was looking around. Nobody stopped to help her. She goes, even though they couldn't go anywhere, the traffic was moving so slow, nobody even asked if they could help. So she leaned against the trailer and at one point Dodie said, I just prayed to God. She goes, Father, could you send me an angel, preferably a mechanic? (laughs) Four minutes. In four minutes... Dodie said, this man raced up next to her on his motorcycle. She was a little bit shocked. He got off. He was a big burly man, had a black leather coat, arms were ripped out, tattoos down, long black hair, beard. And he just turned and looked at her. She was a little bit shocked. And he immediately went to work on her truck without saying anything. He flagged down another big truck. They towed her unit off to the side, got her off on a side street, and the man continued to work on the vehicle. Dodie admitted, she says, I was a little fearful. There's a little bit of trepidation. I didn't want to speak to him. She says, because on the back of his coat, it said, Hell's Angels, California. (laughs) So, rightly so. But realizing that this stranger was working on her truck, she finally worked up the nerve and she just said, Thank you. And the man turned around and looked at her and then just mumbled to her, don't judge a book by its cover. And he turned back, fixed the truck, and she said, and as quickly as he appeared, he jumped on his motorbike and he raced off. And I went, yay God, one for the bikers. (laughs) But for Dodie, she learned something important because she immediately assessed the nature of the man based on his external appearance. What she didn't know is the true heart of the man that was there. James brings us back and he says, be careful because favoritism, which can be so culturally acceptable, can be so destructive to every one of your relationships. And that's why he says, don't do it. Don't allow it to seed into anything that you're doing. Warren Wiersbe says, the way we behave towards people indicates what we really truly believe about God. How we act, how we respond towards people, he said, is really the measure of what we believe about God. And so James says, be careful. Just don't show favoritism. Go back to your notes. 
Let's look at one more. So we know that we need to strive to be impartial. We need to honestly confront our personal biases. There's one more step to overcoming favoritism. Consistently expressing mercy. Consistently expressing mercy is the only way to deal with favoritism. And James gets right to the heart of this. It's this third step. It's the law of love. It's the ultimate commandment for human relationships where we are called to love one another. Let's look at what James says. James chapter 2, verse 8. It's on the screen. You will do all right if you obey the most important law in the Scripture. It is the law that commands us to love others as much as we love who? Ourselves. Now we look at that and we go, well, that's a nice word. It's a nice little statement. What we don't often pay attention to is we love ourselves. Is that not true? We really do. I mean, we're, fil- we're full of self-love. Now, I know sometimes we go with self-image problems. We, get, we struggle a little bit. But most of us like to look at ourselves in the mirror. I, I really don't know a lot of people that when they're standing in front of the mirror, they go, oh, you know, I wish somebody else was there right now. Most of us feel pretty good about ourselves. James picks up on this and he goes, we know how to love ourselves. He goes, if you really want to fulfill the law of human relationships, it's the law of love given to us by Jesus. Love others as much as you love yourself. In fact, we went through this through our series, Simple Faith. We're to love God, we're to love our neighbors, and we're to love our enemies. And if we were to do that, we would avoid showing favoritism to anyone because we wouldn't have to. We would love everyone equally, and there would be no favorites. So the challenge for us is to come back and consistently express mercy. It's the only way to deal with favoritism. I want you to look back at James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now he gets really practical, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read it off the screen for you. James goes on to say this, So whatever you say and whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others, but if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when He judges you. So what's He doing? He's throwing it out here, real open for us. He goes, There will be a day where we will give an account for our life, the way that we lived. And He said, And you get to choose now how you will be judged in the future. So watch. He said, whatever you say and whatever you do, the word, the grammar, the grammatical structure, the words that he's using there, he's talking about this ongoing active way of living. So whatever you say, whatever you do, remember you're going to be judged by the law that will set you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, so what James is getting at, he said, if you learn how to speak out words of love, And if you learn how to do acts of love, you have no reason to ever worry about being judged by God because you're living out the very essence of the life that He's called us to. That's why James chapter 2, verse 1, it started off. He goes, brothers, don't show favoritism because the life that we're called to live is a life where all people are created equal and all people matter to God. And God wants you, He wants me to be the conduit through which His grace and His mercy flows. Can you imagine the impact on our world if every follower of Jesus Christ would eradicate the roots of favoritism and actually lived out what Christ called us to live? Now, I know some of you are, yeah, but you don't know my mother-in-law. Like, if you met her, you would understand, right? Or you don't know my husband, If you've met my husband, see, we have our excuses. We have our unpublished list. But that's where Jesus comes back and he goes, I came in to forgive you so that you in turn could forgive others. 
I have transformed your heart so that a transformed heart could be the conduit of transformation for this world. Friends, it's so powerful that he goes, the very words that we speak, and we know this to be true, words can build up or words can tear down. You can say to your child, man, you are doing such a great job. And you see their spirit open up, right? Or you can turn around and say, what is wrong with you? And you see their spirit shut down. If you have more than one child in your family, I was raised in a family, we had six kids. And my parents were very careful to treat us all equally. Now, I was their favorite. We knew that. But anyhow, they worked very carefully not to let the other ones know this. But their words were always equal. And whenever they would catch themselves, and we make mistakes. Anybody ever make a mistake on this one? Yeah, I've been there. They made mistakes. We make mistakes. And they would try to correct them. They didn't want to compare one child to the next child. And that's part of the teaching that we have. Never compare one person against another person. We're all different. We all have different personalities. We have different backgrounds. We have different experiences. That's why I love our church. When you look around, we are so different. There's such a variety of people here. We have guests. Laura and I can tell you this over and over. When our guests come and visit here, they do nothing but brag to us about how great our church is. They go, it's so diverse, and people get along, for the most part. People get along. No, you do. And they love how we hang out in the back, and we talk, and we visit. And the thing that I really appreciate, every culture doesn't make culture a reason for not getting along. There are no barriers in our culture. Our ethnicities do not divide us. They make us stronger. And I love how we just integrate together and we work together. That, to me, is the reflection of what James is calling us to do. So that we work hard. We make sure that we express ourselves through what we say and what we do so that God will be honored in everything that we do. If you go back into Scripture, and it's there in your notes, Mark chapter 12, 29 to 31, Jesus really laid it out clear for us. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then the second commandment is equally important. Notice that? It's equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we spend most of our energy loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus goes, you can't do that one and neglect this one. It is equally important. He said, and now love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that you will overcome the roots of favoritism. Now, the good news for those of you that were worried about Smarties, Smarties will not produce favoritism in your life. It may produce calories and some extra poundage, but it's not going to produce favoritism. But the truth of God's Word, when we apply it, will root out that which our culture has deemed to be acceptable. And we will be countercultural. And let me tell you, if we live this out together, people would rise up and they would take notice. What is different about you? For all people are considered equal in your eyes. Where did you learn that? Because it's not the norm. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, this morning, that's what we pray in our hearts, that the truth of James, as practical as he teaches it, would find a way to live out through every one of our hearts and lives. We all know that there are times that we've failed in this area, that there's times we've preferred other people over individuals, that we've made mistakes. But this morning, 
We want to strive to do what your word calls us to do. And so as James made it so clear, he said, don't play favorites. May today be a day with a fresh start for all of us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that in every face that we look into, that we will see the love and the character of Christ. And with joy in our hearts, we will embrace all people equally. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.